this is Senator Malcolm Roberts with Our Nation Today. Under Australian law, there's an overarching principle that our right to freedom is a basic inalienable right around which our body of law has been formed. Over the last 18 months, we've had a good look at what freedom looks like through the prisms of freedoms and human rights being removed. Many Australians are waking up to the fact that we have taken our freedom for granted. Our country's response to COVID sees fit to lock people up for the crime of being healthy, censoring media, using scaremongering on the population and forcing small businesses to close. Each new restriction, although met with rightful public opposition, has not led to a re-evaluation. Instead, it has led the government to crack down even tighter. Everyday Australians are being deliberately demoralised to extract a higher degree of compliance. Crushing resistance crushes hope. And without hope, we have no future. One of the more draconian outcomes from COVID has been the steamrolling of the population into mandatory vaccinations, injections. Our rights over our bodies have been annihilated and we have been swept into the world's largest clinical vaccination trial without consent. Many are standing in defiance of the mandatory vaccinations. Even these people double vaxxed. We are now on the very cusp of a two-tiered society the injected versus the uninjected. The government rhetoric is flaming the division, pitting citizen against citizen, and workplaces are pitting employee against employee. One of those people who have taken a stand is Graham Hood, the now famous Australian Qantas pilot. Graham is a 53-year veteran of the aviation industry and a pilot with Qantas for 32 years. He has over 35,000 hours of flying and 20,000 takeoffs and landings. Qantas charges him and his crew with the lives of thousands of people every year to fly and arrive safely at their destinations. Yet he is unable to make his own decisions around the COVID injection. As with so many other industries, this injection has been mandated at Qantas. Welcome to the podcast, Graham. Great to join you, Malcolm. It's been a long time coming. And I must say that I admire you and respect you for what you've done. And and I've seen you speak in public and I've seen you on videos. What a wonderful speaker you are. I'm really looking forward to this because I've, I've got uh, someone who's been around and knows what he's doing. So let me ask you a few questions. A lot has happened in your life over the past month or so. Your 53 years in the air has taken a drastic turn where you are now all over the airwaves instead of the airways fighting for rightful freedoms. Can you tell us more about that journey? And in your case, I'd like you to go right back to your childhood, your love of flying, Everything associated with that brought you to this point and what and that made you as you are. Malcolm, that, what an honour to be able to share this with you and and I hope you don't mind if I get emotional every now and then and puddle up a little. Uh, I'm glad Graham, not- uh, Graham, I'm feeling a little bit teary myself just just doing the introduction because okay, I know I know what's going through so many people's lives at the moment. It's just disgraceful. Yes, it certainly is, mate. Well, um, I, I uh, grew up. Uh, moving around with mum and dad, they were uh, my dad was involved in construction, uh, so we moved around a fair bit. And at, at age five, uh, I had a realization that my family was very dysfunctional. They were mum and dad were both drinking heavily. They were in an unhappy marriage, and uh, my brother, who was twelve years older than me, left home, and uh, I was only five, and I, I just felt uh, totally alone and uh, and neglected and and whatever. But, you know, as a kid in those days, you could do anything. We used to mess around and build cubby houses and 
in the backyard of the, the house in Wollongong where I lived, uh, there was a, a chook yard and uh, a little chicken shed. And my friend David and I used to climb up a ladder onto the roof of the chook shed and sit in a wooden fruit box, you know, the type with the slats down the side. <laughs> yeah. And we'd sit there and I'd hold a garden rake upside down and pretend it was the steering wheel of a plane. And David sat in the back of a in a box behind me with a broomstick and he was a tail gunner and we flew Lancasters over Germany every afternoon after school. And uh, we'd get shot down a dozen times every afternoon and we'd always bail out from the roof down into the chook poo and lie on the ground and pretend we were dead for a minute and then scramble up the ladder and do it all again. <laughs> and I can see from the smile on your face and the tone of your voice, it brings back very happy memories. It certainly does. And anyhow, one day I'm lying on the back on my back in the chook poo and I looked up at the sky and it was there was a thin layer of overcast about 12,000 feet over Wollongong. And I heard this rumbling sound and there was a beautiful Lockheed Super Constellation, a big propeller-driven aeroplane uh, with the three tails on the back. And it was they were cloud surfing. Um, and that means they were skimming the top of the cloud um, to get the, the effect of the speed. And it's like flying low level. And as they, as they flew on, they left a blue trail behind them, which was the sky because they... The cloud they'd just flown through had dissipated and you could see this blue strip of sky. And I looked up at these four big rumbling engines and I knew then that that was my destiny, that I was going to fly. And it was a Qantas, uh, Connie. And from that moment on, every dream, everything I did, I built every model aeroplane, I read every book, every magazine. It was all about aviation. And uh, uh, I, I decided to pursue that as a career very early so at primary school I had a I had a uh, photographic memory so I skimmed through primary school it was no drama but when we got to high school that was the same time puberty happened and when the testes dropped my photographic memory left me <laughs> and I didn't know how to study or and, it just that you were diverted too easily yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so I was uh, I went to first year at high school and halfway through first year at high school I got rheumatic fever and my mum and dad were living in a caravan in the bush in the Sutherland Shire, and uh, it was a 15-foot caravan with no annex, and that's the three of us lived there. And so with rheumatic fever, I was off school for six months. Mum and dad were working. I was left alone in the caravan uh, in the hot summer months, and uh, one day I stumbled across uh, a girly magazine, and uh, that started a lifelong addiction to pornography, which I'm glad to say I'm well and truly over and done with now. Um, and I say that because... I want my story to have resonance with, with everyday people because, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not presenting myself as some kind of guru or some kind of clean skin. I'm, I've been a broken man in my life and many of us have. And so it's okay to talk about our brokenness when we come out. Um, so, uh, but the, the reason that I mention that as well is that it had a profound effect on my studies and my schoolwork uh, because I was so addicted. And after six months of being at uh, in the caravan and getting better I went back to high school and I was only there for a day and I had a fight with the maths teacher and uh, I ended up deciding on that day that I would never ever go back to school so I started to uh, truant for about six months so there was a year gone where I hadn't been to school and eventually I got caught and uh, I was dragged in to see the deputy principal with my parents and the deputy principal said, you know, you, you're in a lot of trouble and you're going to have to really pull yourself together and get back to school because you can be charged and we can take you off your parents uh, and uh, you can be made a ward of the state. And I said, in my, in my boyish charm, 
well, I ain't going to school and I ain't going to no reform school either. <laughs> and and so he said to me, well, what do you want to do with yourself? I said, I want to be a pilot. And he said, well, you've got to have an education to be a pilot. I said, look, I've, I've read magazines. I can go to Bankstown Airport. I can do a flying lesson every weekend and I can learn and I can do it that way. I just, I just want to go and get a job and earn money and pay for my flying lessons and I'll do it myself. Anyhow, he couldn't do that then because I was too young to leave school. So he sent me to Macquarie Street in Sydney to see a um, to see a vocational guidance counsellor who was a guy who I remember looked very young and probably only just out of uni himself. And I did some IQ testing. And after lunch, I went back in to see him and he leaned back in his swivel chair and he said to me, so what do you want to do with yourself, young man? And I said, I want to be a pilot. And he laughed at me. He actually laughed at me and he, he said, you've got to have intelligence to be a pilot. And I was dumbfounded. I, I just looked at him and uh, I said, well, what what do I do? He said, I could probably get you an, an early apprenticeship with the Garden Island, Garden Island Naval Dockyard as a ship's painter. I said, what, shipping rust off old ships? He said, yeah. And I let out a few expletives <laughs> and I burst into tears. I was so angry and I walked out of the office, 13 years of age, I jumped on a bus to Central Railway, caught a train back to the Sutherland Shire, and the next day I had to meet with the deputy principal and he, he uh, with my parents, and he said, well, the meeting didn't go very well yesterday, did it? And I said, no. And I said, and I'm still not coming back to school and there's no way you're sending me to reform school. And he said, well, I've actually arranged a dispensation for you to leave school early. But he said, you've got to, you've got to come back to me every week with a copy of your payslip. I need to know that you're working. Now, that was a real turn in my life, you know. That was great. So Why I got did a he job. do that? Why did he do that? You know, I'm a, I'm a great believer in God, and I believe God had his hand all over that right from the beginning. Um, I don't know. He, he, he was obviously touched by my passion to fly, and he knew that I was a lost cause as far as school was concerned. He also knew that the altercation with the maths teacher that caused me never to go back again was the maths teacher's fault, and he was really embarrassed about that. The maths teacher was somebody who should never have been a teacher, and he was very cruel. Um, so you were lucky so, to have a compassionate principal who had, yeah. had some brains and had some care. Absolutely. So wow. my first job was an apprentice butcher at Miranda Fair Shopping Centre. I was making pets mints for $7 a week. A flying lesson was $15 an hour. Uh, and I had 60 different jobs to raise money to, to put myself through, through a flying education and I actually did that. I did it the hard way. Um, and uh, I got married before I could actually start flying for a living. Um, I got married for all the wrong reasons to a lovely lady, but we should never have been together in the first place. And eventually my flying career started. I was uh, a mustering pilot on a three and a half million acre cattle station in Western Queensland. I went from there to crop dusting, a couple of years in the Hunter Valley uh, crop dusting, and then into... Uh, Charter flying, flying twin engine aircraft around, flying politicians around and uh, cattle buyers around Western Queensland. And that led me to a position with uh, a company called Bush Pilot Airways, which was based oh, yeah. in Cairns and Brisbane, Bushies. They became Air Queensland. Now, at the time, I wrote to them. I always wanted to fly for them. And I wrote to them and I said, I want a job. And I told them how many hours I had. I had about 1,500 hours and I didn't have all the, all the uh, academic qualifications I needed. And they wrote back to me and said, you know, we're near qualified. Come back to us in three years. 
And I thought, blow that, I'm going to reapply every two weeks. So I wrote him a letter every two weeks. And I said, in the last two weeks, I've flown, you know, 60 hours and my hours have gone up. And after about eight months of that, I got a telegram to attend an interview in Brisbane. And uh, I rang the receptionist who I'd become uh, known to because I pestered her every week asking her when they were (laughs) going to employ me. And uh, she said, look, I've got you slated for an interview. We want three pilots. There are 80 applicants and you're the least qualified. You won't get the job, but I want you to come down and see what the interview is like. And I said, okay. So I took off in the rusty old Cortina, drove from Rocky to Brisbane. And I sat through the interview and it was grueling. Three very senior pilots grueled me for about half an hour and a half and I walked out of there and I thought, wow, I think I've blown it. And uh, I asked her on the way out, you know, when will I know? And she said, well, you're not going to get it, but it'll be about a week before they make a decision. And two weeks had passed and they hadn't. And I kept ringing her, when are they going to make a decision? She said, they're still <laughs> working on it. Anyhow, then I get a telegram, please report to uh, Cairns Airport on such and such a date to commence training as a first officer on their Douglas DC-3 based in Cairns with wow. Bushies. Wow. And I thought, wow, I couldn't believe it. So I drove up there, everything on the roof rack, uh, jumped out of my car, went into the chief pilot's office to sign a contract. He gave me my manuals to, so I could study how to fly a Douglas DC-3. He gave me a coupon to get a uniform and a pair of gold wings, which I have mounted on red cedar at home here. And uh, he said, welcome to the company. And I said, Thank you so much. I said, before I go, can you tell me, I know I was least qualified out of 80 for three jobs. How did I get the job? He said, well, we looked at it and we thought it was, uh, we either buy a new filing cabinet or give you a job and we thought the latter one would be cheaper. So <laughs> it's just perseverance, Malcolm. Now, yeah. Bushies became Air Queensland. They got, a, they got involved in a takeover battle for their on-carriage between ANSET and then TAA. TAA won that battle bought Bushies out, and then TAA became Australian Airlines, which then got merged into Qantas, and that's how I became a Qantas pilot. Wow. And and what brought you to your current state? Because you're no longer a Qantas pilot. No, well, um, I've always had a heart for welfare. I've always been involved in human factors training in the airline, and um, I'm not a technical person. I'm very much a human-orientated person. I like people. I love the way people tick. I find it fascinating. I love watching people. and um, At the same time, you're very logical. Yeah? Is there a division there between... No, there, is, no, there isn't. I'm, I'm just, no, I'm just saying you're, 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 you work off both your gut and your heart and also your mind because your mind's oh, very, yeah. you're very logical. You, yep. work th- you think things through. I mean, you wouldn't be here. You'd be dead as a pilot if you, if you weren't. So I know you've got all... You work with yeah. your gut, your mind and your heart. Yeah. Exactly right. And, and I, not I don't many believe, people do. Well, it's a good attribute for a pilot because your yeah. gut instincts can keep you out of the trees. And one of my favorite sign-offs is stay out of the trees, and that's what it means. You know, <laughs> uh, a pilot's, uh, there's no place for a pilot stuck in the top of a tree. Um, so um, I, because I really cared about people in the airline, uh, because I see Qantas as the spirit of Australia because of its staff, not because of its CEO or its its board. It's because of the staff. And I've I've always built good relationships at work. People found me very easy to fly with. Um, I I would never ever lord it over anybody because I trusted that all the people on my crew were highly trained, and I didn't have to teach them or tell them to do anything. They knew exactly what their roles were. So I tried to make it a good day out for all of my crew because. It, 
a crew that feels part of a team like that really functions well. And so as a result of what was going on with COVID and the stand downs and, um, you know, people being stood down and not only stood down but retrenched and sacked, a lot of people were very worried. And so a lot of them were confiding in me and I was hearing their abject pain. I was listening to grown men and women who, like me as a five-year-old, probably dreamt that one day they would fly and their career is halfway along its tracks. And some guy who runs an airline with a massive pay, uh, payroll and a massive salary of his own account stands up in the media on this particular day and says, anyone who decides not to be jabbed is deciding not to have a career in aviation. And that incensed me. It absolutely enraged me. I thought it was the most arrogant, ignorant thing anyone could ever say. For somebody who's the CEO of an airline to have so little understanding of what makes his aviators tick. And I, I realised that I'm probably, I've probably been flying longer than he's been alive. And that just made me even angrier. So uh, the same day I heard Scott Morrison prattling on about we don't mandate vaccines in this country. And then I thought to myself, well, you don't, but you get your premiers and the CEOs of the, of the corporations to do that for you because you, you know you can't under the Constitution. And then I just got to the stage where I, I realised I had to speak up. I was on Zoom groups with a great many pilots and cabin crew uh, trying to keep them g'd up and not to worry and, you know, get their act together and form groups and get legal advice and I just saw the pain in their faces and I, I just thought, I'm the oldest guy in these groups. I've got a couple of years to go. Uh, you know what? I've got to be their voice and I'll take it on the chin for them because I really love these guys. They're, they're my kin, Aquinas, and uh, I want them to have their dreams fulfilled without coercion and uh, in freedom. So that's why I did what I did. So as a result of that, when I pressed the send button, I sent the uh, the video to a friend of mine who's social media savvy knowing that he would get it on platforms and I and knew that was against Qantas's uh, rules and your conditions of employment absolutely it was against yeah. social media policy uh, I knew when I pressed that button and from what I'd said about the situation that I'd press the flush button on the toilet of my career I knew it was gone um, and uh, I took a deep breath and waited for the ramifications of that which took you know over a week to come to me um, I was contacted by several uh, management pilots who asked me to take the video down. They were concerned about my welfare. They could see the rant was very emotional and stressful. And uh, they asked me to take down the video. But as, as I said, uh, that video went so viral so quickly, there's no way you could bring it back in. And I said, I can't do that. It's out there now. And I got a letter saying that uh, yeah, we're concerned about your welfare. Stay on stress leave for a while, but know that your conduct will be under will be investigated and disciplinary action will be pending. And then I got uh, contacted by lawyers who wanted to support me, uh, who told me that I needed to lay low, uh, keep my mouth zipped up, not say any more, stay on stress leave indefinitely, and they'd work to get me some kind of a payout and I'd be okay financially. Um, but when they said you've got to keep your lips zipped, uh, for 18 months or two years until that happens and I was seeing the messages that came from the original video I posted I knew then and there that if I took the money and waited to take the money I'd be dancing with the devil and I'd rather I'd rather stand with an empty wallet than on my knees with a bank account full of gold Malcolm and I think you yep. know what that means yep I know I've been in a position where 
someone tried to intimidate me and for, for it must have been for a millisecond I had this idea. He asked me a question and he deliberately did it to, he knew the answer. Um, this, this guy was a bully. He was a very senior, very large company, an American company. And he asked me a question and he knew that most people in my position would just say, yes, Tony. And, and I basically told him where to go. <laughs> and, and the whole room just went deathly quiet. Just deathly quiet, and and uh, and he. And that's why you're one of mo- yeah, that's why you're one of the most um, powerful politicians in Canberra, because you you speak it from where you believe it. Yeah. So, but but for there is a split millisecond where I went, mm, this is going to shape my career, <laughs> and and I was in a job that I absolutely loved and was doing amazing things and working with fabulous people, but it, the truth was just too important. It just so it was like, oh bugger that! I'm not even concerned about that little fleeting thought, and just went straight ahead. But I yeah. bet when you push that send button, even though you were hesitating, you weren't you weren't hesitating from the tone of the voice and the, your facial expressions, because no. I can see you over the Zoom. You weren't you weren't you were look you were considering it, but you knew what you had to do. There's no way you were going to back down. No. I, look, I knew for a couple of months before that that I was going to do something like this. Uh, I was just seething. I was walking around. Michelle will tell you, I was walking around like a bear with a sore head. And I, I kept telling her, I've got to make a video. I've got to come out. And she kept saying, well, just do it. And so I spent a lot of time trying to work out um, how I was going to phrase it. And it, when I saw those two announcements within an hour of each other, it just burst out of me. So, um, you know, it's probably providential. Yes, um, and, and I can remember, you know, working, when I, when I graduated from uni, I had an honours engineering degree, and then I said to my father, and he actually said to me, we have a conversation, now that means you may be useful, you better go and learn. So I decided yeah. I, I better go and learn, so I worked underground at the coalface for about three years, different mines around the country, because coal mining is just like flying, there are so many different conditions that come up, and yeah. um, and by the way, my son's got a pilot's licence, he had it from when he was, uh, he got a pilot's license before he got his car license but anyway it was fascinating watching him uh, learn but I worked underground and then later as a mine manager I would go underground a lot because a manager a good leader needs to be with the people that he or she is leading and and so I would go underground a lot corporate executives would criticize me for it I wouldn't go down to do their job Graham I'd go down so that they could if they're pissed off with me they can cry on my shoulder they can they can get into me and ask me why I'm doing certain things just it's called accountability, and you know that. But well, you 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 literally walk to the coalface. Yes, and 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 which is what every leader should do. Things that that got me very few things got me upset, um, but I would be genuinely angry if someone said, "I'm only a coal miner," and I'd say, "You're not just a coal miner. You are putting the lights on in people's homes all around the country. You're exporting you're exporting coal for for the Japanese to build steel." And that's building our country and you're earning export income. You know, and I genuinely mean that. I don't like seeing people downtrodden. That just gets me. Just mm. yeah, same with you. Um, before, we, before we go on, you mentioned um, Alan, Alan Joy. You didn't mention him by name, I think, but uh, he's, he's the, the head of your company. He made those statements. He came out during the, what is it, the same-sex marriage campaign. And said he, he was did, opposed yeah. to, to to discrimination, yet here he yeah. is discriminating. 
I mean, you know, when, when it comes to when it comes to st- the things that really get me, hypocrisy and stealing someone's freedom or, or yeah. subduing someone, and that that just incenses me. Well, you know, he he champions a lot of uh, workplace policies around discrimination, um, except when it comes to something like this. So, I mean, the, the way the way some Qantas staff are treating other Qantas staff at the moment is deplorable, and I've taken some of them to task over that. Um, there are people saying things. There are there are some pilots who joke about. Uh, about the world being better off when these anti-vax pilots, you know, end up rotting at home. Um, now, to me, as as a as a person who's been ta- paid a fair bit of money in my career to do a, a, a minute by minute uh, risk benefit analysis in everything I do, I'm I find it understandable that a lot of guys went for the jab early because they're so fed up with being locked up and they just want to get back to flying. I understand that they did that. And I understand that a lot of them would have done it with a, with a mindset like, you know what, I'll just take my chances. I'll just get this thing so we can get back to work. I do understand that. But there's a part of me that also says, well, look, I've said in the video, I agreed for my mum to get Pfizer in the nursing home a year ago. And then I said to them, I'm not going to get AstraZeneca because the government keeps changing the goalposts on AstraZeneca. And, you know, how do I follow any leadership in that regard? I'm not going to put my health at risk with that. I don't want clotting. I'll go with Pfizer. And I contacted them and I said, I'm not doing AstraZeneca, but if you're going to force me, I will do Pfizer. And they said, okay, we'll let you know when there's a clinic at the airport. So I was set to go. And it was then I thought to myself, well, before I start trusting the health department and Qantas Medical, Maybe I should have a look at what's in this stuff because I've got to pass a medical every six months and I need to know that I'm going to keep doing that to keep my licence. And, of course, when I looked into it and saw the skullduggery going on, and I got it through the ABC. I saw the skullduggery in the ABC when uh, one of your fellow independent senators was questioned by Four Corners in the vaccine rollout program. Um, uh, This guy had applied for freedom of information uh, acquisition of the, the government's rollout policy under Greg Hunt. And he got a 40-page document with a beautiful covering letter on the front. When he opened it up, every page was redacted. (laughs) And and so the reporter took that document to Brendan Murphy and said to Brendan Murphy, why is this redacted? And he leaned back in his chair and he said, well, you know, we have very sensitive commercial agreements and arrangements with our suppliers and they're very strict about what we can reveal. And and the the reporter said, but there's nothing in here. And he said, well, we're not allowed to say anything. And I smelled a rat straight away. And that was through Australia's most trusted news source, the ABC, which has become <laughs> a, bit of a, a bit of a misnomer. But, and, and then from there, I started thinking about, well, if I'm going to be, if I need to be careful and I need, really need to know what's in this and, and I need to ask questions, I started asking a set of questions, 15 basic questions, which are about short-term effects, long-term effects. Will it affect my flying? Is it likely to affect my ability to hold a class one uh, medical for my license? All these basic questions, what's in it? And CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, who needs to appear before a Senate inquiry. I'm here to tell you, mate, they really need to be before a Senate inquiry. They are absolutely giving carte blanche to the TGA on issues that pertain to high altitude flying with an experimental drug or a vaccine. There is no way on earth that CASA would allow me knowingly to take some kind of experimental medication 
and go flying. There's no way they'd do it. And there's no way CASA would let me go to Boeing in America and pick up a brand new aeroplane straight off the production line, the first of its kind, the prototype, and fly it to Australia and fill it with passengers and fly it around Australia without it being thoroughly tested. They wouldn't do it. And Qantas wouldn't ask me to do it. But Qantas is asking its pilots and its cabin crew to do it. And without... and when well, I Scott Morrison's see, asking 25 million, well, 20 million if you knock out the kids, 20 million pick people to do it. Well, he's not actually asking, is he? Because we don't do that oh. in Australia. He's, <laughs> he's allowing the corporations to do it and the government, the state governments to do it. So the minute I realised that that was going on, I thought, right, I'm not going to go anywhere near this thing until I know and I get the information I want to be able to give an informed consent. I mean, that seems common sense to me. Yep. And then I'm hearing people say, oh, by the way, if you do get it, you can still pass it on and you can still catch it. And then I heard somebody the other day saying, you're putting people's lives at risk because you're going to pass COVID on to other people. And I said to them, well, so are you, and you've been double jabbed. So how am I putting anyone's life at risk? And if that's the case, the jab isn't worth the price of the bottle it came in. Malcolm, really? I mean, let's get honest about this. There's no common sense in this at all. So I decided that I'd look into a cure. So my wife's uh, a bad asthmatic. We live in a semi-rural property. Um, we're out of the way. We can isolate. We don't have to go shopping much. We grow most of our own food. What can we do to make ourselves healthy? So I looked at, at uh, building my immune system. I went to a plant-based diet. I started taking vitamin Ds and vitamin Cs. Uh, we looked at all the other the other ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Uh, we looked at all those regimes. And when I started delving into cures through Google, the first port of call was uh, Vladimir Zelenko and uh, Peter McCullough. And what, a re- what an amazing resource. Why are these men who are happy to talk to every government in the world not appearing in Parliament outlining their strategies? I mean, for goodness sake. So we've got a set of regimes ready to go if we get the slightest bit sick. And so have a lot of other Australians. Mm-hmm. And an 80, oh, yeah. an 80, yeah, at the 87-year-old father of a good friend of mine got COVID in casino three weeks ago. And the health department said to him, you've got COVID, stay home until your lips turn blue or you cough up blood. And he said, he said, okay, so they went. And the minute they went, he opened up a package that his son sent him with all the instructions and he went into the regime and in three days he'd beaten it. And they, what they was got the regime? The I'm sorry, the, 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 sorry, my connection dropped out then for a brief. What was the regime? The one recommended by Dr. Peter McCullough. Okay. Um, so he had the vitamin C, vitamin D, big doses. He had a good high-quality antibiotic. He was taking aspirin for blood clots. And he had ivermectin and he had uh, uh, zinc, quercetin and zinc and zinc, vital components. And within three days, he started to feel better. And a week later, they checked on him, which was unusual because they don't do that very often. <laughs> and they wanted him to go to hospital for a checkup and they couldn't work out why he wasn't dead. And they let him go. He was only in hospital for observation for a couple of hours and they let him go home. So I thought, okay, I'm going to ride this out. Qantas has mandated it for international flyers, but not for us guys in domestic. So I'll wait it out and I'll just, I'll take, um, I'll take a bit of leave and just stay out of the loop for a while and make sure that I can get the information that I need to get. Well, that information still isn't at hand. We still can't get it. And uh, then they mandated it. So for me, it was a very simple choice. I, I understand why guys have taken it early. 
I don't understand why many of them voted to have it mandated through a company survey. I don't know why anyone would want anything mandated. Why would you, why would you vote in favour of having a restriction put on your life? Well, Graham, it's it's basic. You you, you understand leadership. I, I heard you speak very very well, eloquently down at Coolangatta on a protest just recently. Um, you understand leadership because leadership is about creating, getting the data. You care enough to get the data, get the facts, and then you make a plan, and then you put out a vision that that will be attractive to people. But it's got to be based on truth. And then a leader says, okay, he, he or she draws the people forward. You don't pull them, you draw them forward, but you let them make up their own mind because leadership is about getting people to voluntarily agree with your position and to then work towards achieving the goal that they now own. Bullying is where you kick people, push people, shove people, threaten people. What we've got in this country is not leadership, it's bullying. And yet Australia is, in their armed forces has, been, has, has had phenomenal leaders, our sports, our medicines in the past, our science, our arts. We're phenomenal leaders around the world. Yeah. Aviation, we punch well above our weight. But now we the country is run by bullies. Yeah, you know, and if you've got to be coerced, bribed, bullied or, or uh, forced with loss of your job or anything to put something in your body, I think the automatic assumption for you might be that that's not in your best interest. Exactly. And the government and the health bureaucrats and the media, the mainstream media have overcooked the goose. You know, they make anyone sceptical. I mean, it's like walking down the main street of Surface Paradise and having a timeshare salesman come out and wanting to bring you in for a champagne supper and all that. You just walk straight past him. I mean, that's why um, I'm, I'm very sceptical. Uh, I mean, it's like uh, that, those ads where you used to get offered a set of steak knives if you bought Demtel or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and now the Queensland Premier's in Townsville for this weekend, spruiking her Super Pfizer, Super Pfizer jab weekend. I mean, what planet is this woman on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've just written to that woman, uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk, and Scott Morrison in a joint letter, which is about 60 pages long. And uh, I've just put down the data that we've got, and it's just disgraceful what's going on, mismanagement. But come back to Qantas. Now, a few years ago, we, I wouldn't have said this. Well, say 40 years ago, most people didn't really understand this. But it became very clear to me early on that the key factor for driving the safety, the quality, the productivity, the costs of any organization is the culture of that organization. It's the most powerful determinant of productivity. Now, when I was young, um, you know, I didn't fly TAA deliberately because it was the government airline. ANSET was privately owned, and I just thought, government, nah, they're, they're bloody hopeless. I was so biased. Then I actually flew on Qantas. My first overseas trip was on Qantas, and I was, this is amazing. These are wonderful people. They're, they're fabulous service. Um, they're not luxury. I was down the back of the plane, but really well-mannered, very polite, very efficient. They didn't disturb you if you're asleep, whereas the Yanks would wake you up. You know, do you want to meet? No, I, I don't want to eat. I'm sleeping. You know, so, so Qantas, I got a lot of admiration for Qantas. And, and James Strong, he must have been a very effective leader. Um, oh. Yeah, oh. so see, look at that. I could tell, and, and, and there he was, and he built that culture. But the culture was about we're the only airline that hasn't had a, a crash, uh, sorry, a life, life lost in a crash, etc. So the culture in Qantas is phenomenal. And what I see now, I go on, a, on board a Qantas plane, the, the courtesy is gone. You know, the, the Qantas staff used to be courteous and firm if they needed to be, but now it's put your mask on and, and 
Put your mask on, sir. And I, but I'm, I'm drinking a cup of tea. Put your mask on and take it off between sips. What? Don't argue. Put it on. Okay, fair enough. Righto. You just keep yep. the peace. That tells me Qantas is heading for a major disaster, financially and possibly safety-wise. When you destroy the spirit of the people that, that create your culture, you've destroyed the culture. And when you destroy people's spirit, you destroy them as human beings and they just exist as autonomons. Yep. Uh, the difference between James Strong and, and the current leader, uh, Alan Joyce, Alan Joyce is a robotic mathematician. You know, he's brilliant at math- mathematics. He's a statistician. Um, he is, he's a figures man. James Strong was a man of the heart and a man of the people. Who His mantra was, you get the staff on side, they get the customers on side, that gets the board and the shareholders on side, and the circle goes round and round and everyone benefits. You could meet James Strong in, in, uh, in 1994 and not see him again until 1998, and he would remember your first name. Wow. He was an amazing human being. I did a lot of work with James Strong, and he knew how to run an airline. And he, he took TAA from that organisation that you despised, and so did I in the early days. It was a bureaucratic nightmare. And he turned it into Australian Airlines and gave it a spirit. Mm. The ad campaign was, you should see us now. Uh, you know, we're really, we're really moving. And it was a great place to work. And the spirit of the people was fantastic. And I had him on the flight deck one day when he became the boss of Qantas because uh, I used to communicate with him quite a bit, a lovely guy. And he's, I said to him, he went to work for uh, Cause Solicitors, I think, and, and he didn't quite fit into the legal environment. Uh, he really needed to be in aviation. And I said to him, James, what's it like now, you must be in your element. You're heading up the world's safest and one of the world's oldest airlines. You have reached your pinnacle. And he said, Graham, he said, if I could spend half the time I spend taking knives out of my back from the culture of this organisation and actually doing what I want to achieve, we would be really flying. And I got it. He said, the culture is terrible, absolutely terrible. <clears throat> now, they had, he did lead a shift in that culture and then Jeff Dixon came on board and Jeff Dixon was like the junkyard dog, you know. He was a fierce, robust competitor. He would tear uh, his competitor's arms and legs off. But he had a larrikin way about him too and he was the one who led Alan Joyce into the chair and I have a lot of admiration for some of the things Alan Joyce has done. I mean, the fact that Qantas has got... Uh, the profit that it had to keep it, sustain it through this period in, in its existence is largely to do with Alan Joyce's management, and that's good. But as far as keeping the spirits of the staff up, his mantra would be, well, you know, if there's no airline, if we're not profitable and we don't have any money, there's no airline, so nobody has a job anyway. Um, so he puts but, profit before people, whereas it's the people who cause the profit. Exactly right. So the difference in leadership is profound, and I... I firmly believe um, I, I don't. I don't think we should be attacking the the, uh, the CEOs of these companies. I think we should be attacking the system that allows them to have as much power as they do. Uh, the fact that the government. I, I said jokingly the other day in an interview I did in America that the best thing that could happen to Australia is for Parliament House to be turned into a giant Airbnb, and and we don't elect politicians anymore. We elect the boards and CEOs of big corporations because they're the ones who run. The country, and right. I don't want to do you out of a job, Malcolm. But you know what I mean. So, 
how, how can it be that a government, by way of the Constitution, cannot mandate medical conscription, force a jab, and yet a corporation living in the under the auspices of that Constitution because of the people and the country in which it lives can can subvert the Constitution and apply its own rules anyway. How is it that company yep. policy is greater than Australian constitutional law? You answer that and you'll be Prime Minister one day. Yeah, well, the, th the thing is the, the Constitution governs the way the government operates. It doesn't govern the way corporations operate. But there's a simple fix to this. If the government had any balls, they would enact legislation. Sorry, if it had balls and integrity, they would enact legislation saying you cannot do that. You cannot inject someone. You cannot give medication mm -hmm. to someone without their informed consent. Full stop. End of story. As soon as the government did that, federal level, no state government could do it. In Western Australia, at the moment, the state government can go and get someone and hold them down, strip them down, take their clothes off them and forcibly inject them against their will. It's in their law. Victoria can do, the, do similar. They can forcibly inject people. If the federal government had a, man, had, a, had a legislation that just said no coerced injections, no conscription for injections, it would stop overnight. But the federal government is enabling this to happen. It wants it to happen. Yeah, once, yeah exactly. Because the federal government is, is, at, the, is at the behest of um, both Labor and Liberal, at the behest of the major corporations that run this planet. And the thing that really bugs me um, is that we as a nation have been pointing our finger at other countries and cultures for their human rights abuses. And this Prime Minister is happy to point the finger at China over the Uyghurs. He's happy to point the finger at Myanmar. And he's happy to turn a blind eye when Australian citizens are shot in the back with rubber bullets in, their, in, one of his, in his second largest city. He has lost his, his authority to point the finger at any other nation. He has lost his authority. He, I believe he stood up and he preached a sermon at a large, a very large mega church somewhere, and he said that he felt that he was ordained by God to be Prime Minister of Australia. Automatically, by making a comment like that, he disqualified himself in both counts. He disqualified mm. himself as a Christian and he disqualified himself as a Prime Minister. And he's acted in that disqualification in a disgraceful way. And I think... Um, he, he just smiles his way through everyone else's crises. He doesn't give a flying toss about the, the people of Australia who are dying at their own hands. He doesn't care about the families that are absolutely destroyed by these mandates. And he sits there and he leans back on the world stage and said, we're a free country. You know, we believe in informed consent. He's an absolute hypocrite. And I had such great hopes when he won the election. I really had great hopes. But the sad part, Malcolm, is... As an everyday Aussie, who I go from one election to the other and I'll decide on the policies on the day. I'm neither Labor nor Liberal. But to me, for years, I've lived in a country where it doesn't matter who Prime Minister is, who the, um, who the ruling party is, nothing changes. Albanese or Morrison, who cares? It doesn't matter. We've got to get cooperatives of, of minor parties really getting hold of the power and really wielding that power for the people, for the citizens. And I, I see a lot of the minor parties are, 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 are compiled of citizens, not politicians. There are people who are, in, uh, who are heading for the, the next election who don't want to be in this position, but they realise they have to be because they're citizens. They're not career politicians. I don't think you ever set out to be a career politician. No, no, I certainly didn't. Neither did Pauline. 
No, exactly right. So people are in this position because they feel the need to. I, I, I talk a lot with Jason Miles up in Brisbane who's running for the Senate, I think, for uh, Rod Cullerton. And, and uh, Jason is a man who says, I'm not here. I'm not here because I want to be a politician. I'm here because I want to get our country back. And he said, I wish I didn't have to. I've got other things I need to do. So the best union leaders, the best, the best managers, the best, the best, poli- the best uh, political leaders of countries are the ones who don't want to be because they don't have a vested interest. They have a desire to see their, their country and its citizens flourish with the best of opportunities that can be made available to them. And we don't give a rats about that in this country anymore. Our leadership has failed the mantra. They do not deserve to even be classified as leaders. We have a bunch of dictators who are destroying the Federation under the backboneless uh, entity of the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. No backbone. These shadow, um, whatever they call them, these, these meetings that they have with the Premiers and the Prime Minister, I think some of them are being kept secret nowadays. To me, that's just a star chamber. Uh, these yes, people are yes. just these people are just making decisions willy nilly. We wake up every day to a new law, and not even a law; it's a ruling or it's a mandate. It's not a law. Yeah, there's no law. Well, Graham, let's let's look further because I know you understand the spirit of humans is is so important. It's the thing that that, that drives everyone, keeps people cohesive. You know, when the spirit is 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 there, it's really very very strong. It's a it's a productive um, tool in the marketplace. But it can, it can never be got through manipulation or deceit. It has to be developed and people have to want to come on board. The major casualty that I see in this whole, it's not a pandemic. There's no pandemic of death, so it's definitely not a pandemic. This, there are people dying, I'll, I'll admit that, but no more so than the flu. That Throughout this whole thing, this mismanagement, that's what it is. It's a mismanagement of a distraction, a beat up, an exaggeration. The major casualty is truth, and the people on the ground right around the country know that. It doesn't matter whether they've been injected or not injected. They all know that we've been bullshitted to. That is abundantly clear. When Anastasia Palaszczuk puts out an edict that says you can have 43,000 people at the grand final, but you can't have more than 20 people dancing at a wedding, when when some of the heartless things that have happened, babies being turned away from, from hospitals, Mothers with pregnant kids, uh, with, with pregnant fetuses, they're turned away from Brisbane Hospital from northern New South Wales, where you came from. And, and they, they lose one of the babies because they have to fly to Sydney for 16 hours or whatever it is. I mean, this is just inhuman. It's, in, it's insane. But when truth is lost, you lose confidence in the leadership. When you lose confidence in the leadership, you lose any kind of hope. People have long held the cynical view towards politicians in this country, and so they should. It's well-deserved. But now it's completely shot. And you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I do, mate. I mean, uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk and Jeanette Young, um, one situation that comes to mind, a, a local, one of our locals around here, her father was raced from northern New South Wales to a hospital in Brisbane. Uh, he was not allowed... Oh, by, by, the way, by the way, I'll cut you off just there, Graham, because... People need to understand that the Brisbane hospitals get federal money to look after people from central northern coast of New South Wales right through to Rockhampton. Anybody in that catchment goes to those hospitals. The state government in our state of Queensland gets federal money to look after people from northern New South Wales. They must look after them. 
Well, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. But this this particular old gentleman, a lovely old fella, uh, had, was was I think he went to Lismore Base, and then they had to send him up to Brisbane for specialist treatment. And he was up there, and his family were told that he was dying, but they weren't allowed to go and visit him. He died alone in his hospital bed. And then when they wanted to have his body brought home for, for a funeral, they weren't allowed to. They weren't allowed to go up there for a funeral, and the only way his body could be brought back was in an urn in ashes. So he died alone, he was cremated alone, and his body was brought back in ashes in an urn across the border. Is that, is that a public service government for the people? Well, what about, what about it? It certainly is not. What about a, a three- or four-year-old boy getting cancer treatment in Brisbane and his parents not allowed to be with him? That is just disgraceful. That is, and, shows no understanding of how humans work. It shows no care, no consideration. And then, Graham, we, we, we say how much we appreciate the nurses and the doctors and the, and the uh, hospital administrators and carers and how you're the healthcare heroes of this pandemic. And then the moment some of them decide that, that they'll, they'll in, use their informed consent, you can get sacked. We'll just sack you. Yesterday's heroes, today's garbage in the eyes of many Australians. Just disgraceful. I mean, it, it is absolutely. And why are these, do people actually think, why do people who've spent years at university who are medically trained professionals, who've seen the side effects of the vaccines firsthand, who, who know the stats, who understand the logic, and can't find the information to give informed consent, why are they classified as stupid by the average Australian who's happily swanning around, like up in Queensland? I've got a lot of friends in Queensland that I love dearly. But they're swatting around up there and they're saying to me, what are you doing? What are you, what are you arcing up about? Why are you getting so involved in this? For goodness sake, just get the jab and get on with life, you know. I had a mate contact me and said, oh, we're still going fishing at Iluka this weekend in northern New South Wales. And I said, mate, we can't move. Everything's in lockdown and the caravan park, park's closed anyway. Oh, is it? Oh, oh well, I'll just go fishing down Carumban Creek then. You know, I mean, it's like, and I, I, say, to, I say to people, you are... People have said to me, You're, you've hitched your wagon to the wrong horse. You're not following the science. And I say to them, well, the science created the virus. You know, this thing was hatched <laughs> in a lab. So why should I trust the science around a vaccine that's linked to the science that created the virus to create the mandates that are getting people to give away their freedoms now? Because this is not about health, it's about control. And they say to me, but, you know, just, you know, what do you got to lose? Just get it. I had a union leader for one of the airline unions who looks after people who work on the ground say to me, you know, just go and get it. And I said, well, that's easy for you to say, mate, because you don't work at high altitude like I do. You, you hang around at sea level. I'm not going to take my body with an experimental drug in it to high altitude where I, can get, uh, where I can get thrombosis. No way in the world. And if you don't mind, I'd like to do a bit more research. But the, yeah, the, yeah. People, in this, the people. people in this country are accepting this segregation, this medical apartheid, most of them are happily accepting it. And you know what, Malcolm? In Germany in the 20s and 30s, when the Treaty of Versailles absolutely crushed the German people, you know, the, the, the mm -hmm. Allies who won the First World War have got a lot to answer for with the Second World War. They really do. Mm -hmm. They crushed the German people, and the German people are highly educated, high IQ. Uh, they even called themselves a master race under Hitler. About 80% of them 
turned a blind eye to the fact that the Jews were being round up and shipped off. The next day after they were shipped out, most Germans wouldn't have even given them another thought. About 20% of Germans would have spoken up. A lot of those would have been shot or put in prison and many of them escaped Germany to live out in Switzerland or somewhere else because they didn't like what Germany was going through. At the end of the war, when the bodies in the, in the, in the camps were piled high, the Allies took busloads of Germans through those camps to show them what they'd allowed to happen on their watch and they wept. Mm. We are that close, Malcolm, yes, to that yes, in this we, country. We are. We've taken we, away basic freedoms, basic human rights. You've mentioned medical apartheid. We've met, it's also medical tyranny. We destroyed fundamentals between doctor-patient relationship, which have been in existence for 3,000 years since the Greeks. Now the governments are threatening, government agencies are threatening doctors that they must t- prescribe this, they must endorse this, they must not speak about ivermectin. You know, these kinds of things are just inhuman. We, we have got a government, we have got several governments, which shows that Parliament's shot in this country. We have got several governments that are mandating the injection of a toxin, an untested, unproven toxin that is known to have severe adverse effects into healthy people and may kill them. And yet at the same time, we've got proven treatments that we uh, cannot get, cannot be given to sick people. So with withholding a, a proven medication that will cure people and prevent it being transmitted from sick people, at the same time, we're causing adverse effects on healthy people deliberately against people's will. I mean, this is just insane. And that's the word that keeps coming up. Insanity. You mentioned it a couple of times. Insanity. It's, it's... And, and now I'm hearing that they're, they're, uh, they're allowing Moderna to be given to our kids, to our teenagers, to our 12-year-olds and upwards. You can't even give Moderna to, to teenagers in America where it's manufactured. The FDA, the FDA won't approve it. But the TGA have said, yeah, we've, we've even agreed to a trial of one particular vaccine. I forget what it was. You'd know what it is. For kids as young as six months old, there are 6,000 kids as young as six months old. Who a are COVID going to be injection? Pre- yes. Oh, I didn't this know is, that. No, this, this, there's, there's um, I think, I think oh, I can't say the name of the company. I can't remember it. But they have asked for approval to do a trial on 6,000 infants as young as six months old. And people have, and I, I believe the Australian government has said, yeah, we're happy to, we're happy to participate in that. Well, Greg, um, Hunt, Greg Hunt himself has, is on record as saying the world is engaged in the largest clinical vaccination trial. Well, Graham, you have voted that you are not a rat lab rat. I'm certainly not a lab rat. But that's the health minister admitting that the world is engaged in the largest clinical vaccination trial. But if, the, smiling, if, the smiling health minister. Oh, Terrible. You know, he was he was on the World Economic Forum. He was seconded to the World Economic Forum for a couple of years, 2000 and 2001, and he's working on strategy for them. This is where a lot of this has come from. But, you know, it's it's a remarkable thing. That when I worked in America, I, I, I've actually lived in, and, and worked in eight different states and I've travelled through all 50, and I'm fascinated by America, but it's gone. It, it's really on the downhill now. But... Um, when I worked there back in 1979, they did what was called uh, time and motion studies. That was based upon Frederick Taylor, who did some groundbreaking work back in the early 1900s. And what, what he did was he analysed people's movements 
and worked out the most efficient way to make something, okay, in theory. So, and he he was famous for saying something like, the worker, the manual laborer is just an ox. You don't treat them as if they've got a brain, right? But he had got a gift. And, And that was to, he worked out how to look at a process and make it more efficient. Wonderful. But he destroyed the heart in the process. Now, what the Japanese did, thanks to another American, um, W. Obers Deming, was they used those same kinds of analytical tools, but they said to the workers, you analyze the process. And then they had commitment and heart. And when you bring that commitment and heart, what you call spirit, into a workplace, you get all kinds of things happening. And the Americans were trounced by the Japanese when it came to the uh, manufacturing processes in the 70s. The Americans were fat and happy and sloppy, and the Japanese were hungry, but they were very switched on to the, the importance of people. And that's what government in this country has completely ignored. They want to control us rather than listen to us. Yeah, exactly right, mate, exactly right. So let, let's uh, talk a bit more about uh, the fact that you've stated that this has become more about a crisis of control and loss of freedom than it is about a health crisis. Yeah. Since getting your message out to the world, is that message resonating with the people? Oh, at a thousand miles an hour. I mean, um, when when you stand at a rally that pe- that the mainstream media is calling an anti-vax rally, and half the people come up to you and say, "I'm here and I've been double jabbed. This is not about vaccinations. This is about yeah. freedom." Yep. You know, I mean, people are resonating around the globe. The Americans. I, I'm doing a lot of work with America. I'm, I'm going on a Stu Peters program on uh, Tuesday. You're going on Tucker Carlson too, are you? We're hearing there's negotiations going on for that to happen with, yeah. So, um, we're, we're, um, what we're, what I'm hearing from the Americans is, and even Donald Trump Jr. said it in a tweet not too long ago, we will not let them Australia our America. (laughs) So the Americans are watching us and the difference between the Yanks and us is they actually have a bill of rights. We don't. So they're seeing us being subjugated in a way that would they would never ever contemplate happening over there. But, I mean, they have a situation now which I think is like a powder keg. I think we have a powder keg in Australia too, to be honest with you. I think we're going to see, uh, and I hope not, we're going to see uh, potentially violent uh, militants rise up out of this. If you push people too hard, that's what happens. And we're seeing it in the police force in Victoria. Mm-hmm. I mean... I have a lot of contact with the Thin Blue Line in Victoria, a lot of it, and uh, there are some amazing people there who are fighting back and saying this isn't for us. Hundreds of them are marching with their feet and they're they're protesting, and I think we're going to see a big shift in Victoria soon with the police. Uh, I don't know. I've just got a gut feeling. And, you know, you've got guys like Senior Constable um, uh, Alex Kearney who's spoken up, and uh, and we've got uh, Craig Backman, the Victorian policeman who's spoken up, uh, we've got um, uh, Senior Sergeant uh, Mitchell, Crystal Mitchell, uh, who mm-hmm. made that amazing uh, outpouring. These people are the integrity heart of the Victorian police and they've lost their jobs. You know, when Victoria Police will need to rebuild and it's going to be a massive process, they're going to need the people who are leaving it now because they're the ones with the integrity. Because you've only got to watch a bit of uh, stuff we're seeing on the internet there is a thuggish element in the Victorian police. There are guys who are who are brutal to the, the citizens they've sworn to protect who need to be in jail. They need to be out of the uniform for a start. And I believe that when we when we see that being 
being acted out on our streets in Australia, we've got a really big problem and people are going to fight back. And my prayer and my, my concern is that everybody just does what we do peacefully. We don't need violence. We have to remain peaceful in our protests. But we do have a right to speak while we've still got some semblance of a democracy left. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, as a lawmaker, I can't uh, be seen to be breaking the law, um, but we have to protest. We have to speak up because that's our role. And, and I've, they've tried to suppress me. Government agencies have tried to suppress me, uh, and they, they won't be doing that. Uh, unless they can point to me breaking a law, I, I will be continuing to talk. I know that you believe in the value of the Australian Constitution, as do I, what are people's reactions to you when you talk to them about the Constitution? And what specifically are you saying about the Constitution? Well, I'm saying that their, their reaction, first of all, is most people who talk about politics, they're saying to me, we must never let this happen again, whatever happened to their, our constitutional protections. And, uh, I mean, I downloaded a copy of the Constitution. Um, it's an amazing document. It, it's such an old document, but it gives us so many protections and we can't understand how the highest law in the land could be so easily subverted the way it is by the states and corporations. Most people are feeling that. So the message to most politicians that I'm talking to is clear. If you, if you see me as any kind of a barometer of the people in the country, you have to lean into rebuilding, not rebuilding, but restoring the constitution of Australia back to its rightful place. That must be the, the foundation of everything we do from here as a nation. We must never let this happen on our watch ever again. We must fight to restore it to its rightful place and live in the, in the serenity of its protections. And if we can do that, we can restore this nation to what it once was. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Who are the only people that can change a single word or many words? Even if you want to change a single word in the Constitution, who's the only group of people that's got that right? The Australian citizens. Correct. Uh, and we've got to have a majority of Australian citizens and a majority and a majority of the states. So who yep. then is the sovereign entity of this country? Well, as far as I understand it, well, it's the Australian people. Yes. But the, the sovereign is Queen Elizabeth II, according Correct. to the Constitution. Correct. She, she is the sovereign, but the sovereign power comes from, this, comes from the people in this country. We don't, we, what we do as, as uh, citizens, as voters... We give those who govern us the consent to govern us, and we can take that away when we need to. Correct? Absolutely. absolutely. The go those who govern, govern only with the consent of the governed. And in a democracy, well, in a, in a, in a totalitarian dictatorship, the people are scared of the government. In a democracy where the government is changed by the, at the will of the people at the ballot box, the government is scared of the people. In this country, people are scared of the government. We are not a true democracy, are we? We are not. And, you know, if we're going to talk about sovereignty, uh, I'm saying things about sovereignty now that I wouldn't have said even a few years ago. I believe that the, uh, the British government turned Australia into an offshore detention centre 230 years ago, or 250 years ago. And when they did that, they stole the sovereignty of the people who held it in the first place. And I believe sovereignty is a big issue that needs to further another conversation in our country. Yes. Because I, I tell you, my, my empathy and my admiration 
since this started goes to the First Nations people. I mean, I get my nose put out of joint if I've got to scan a QR code to get into Woolies. And these people have been putting up with the segregation and the second-class citizenry that's been forced upon them for a quarter of a thousand years. And we've got our noses out of joint because we can't go to the beach. Um, you know, I really think as, as citizens, as human beings, we need to reconsider how we've been, how we've acted, and we need to go back to our spirit. We need to go back to the spirit. As me, as a Christian, I believe we have to, as a nation, we need to return to our Christian values. We need to I return agree. to. We need to go back. You know, the more we take God out of our society, the darker and, and filthier it gets. And if that isn't a demonstration of what's going on in the world today, you know, the God yeah. I worship is a God who forgave me. You know, Jesus died on the cross to give a, a filthy porn addict like me a second chance. This is a God of forgiveness and grace, not a not a religious entity that's been uh, been pumped up by some corporate religion. This is an absolute demonstration of what love and grace and trust is all about and we've taken that out of our societies we've become too driven by self we've be, we, we've become bloated on our own entitlement and you can have a thousand friends on facebook but when your house burns down none of them are there are they none of them are there and we need to go back to our our spirit given even our even our laws our laws are based on the ten commandments which the first four are about Worshipping something greater than yourself, in other words, God, paying homage to God, and the last six are about looking after your neighbour. Mm. I mean, it's not hard. Even Jesus said, you know, the first commandment basically is is worship God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength, and the last six are about loving your neighbour as you love yourself. If we just practised that, whether we believed or not in this country, we'd be streets ahead of where we are now, but instead we're going downhill. We live in a society where we're disgruntled, unfinished, broken men can get into a car with their family of four and throw petrol all over them and set them on fire and then stab himself to death in public at nine o'clock in the morning on a Brisbane street. You know, we, we, we happily see on, the, not happily, but we see on the news a disgruntled man driving over the, the uh, Westgate Bridge in Melbourne, stopping at the top and throwing his two-year-old daughter over the top of the bridge because he's angry with his wife. We've got to get back to basic values in this country. We have to restore the Anzac spirit. We have to restore men to their rightful place, men who stand as true to the, to the pole as the compass needle does, men whose yes is their yes and whose no is their no, men who can be re relied upon not to draw their sword at the drop of a hat but choose not to, men who will, who will stand in a way that their, their families and their communities and their wives feel peace at peace and safe in their presence, you know, we have totally lost control of our identity as men. We've been feminised into into oblivion. We've been driven by political correctness into shadows of who we who we were once before, and we need to come back to that. And when we do that, people like Scott Morrison will be seen for what they really are. People like Daniel Andrews and that McGowan guy in WA, they'll be seen for who they really are. They're just they're just basically broken men who are trying to wear a mask that makes them look great and look heroic in the eyes of the public, but they're still broken little boys. And the Correct. minute we the minute we all realise that and step into the role of manhood in this country, I've said I've, I've been lecturing about men's issues for 15 years and, and I see that the average Australian male, if the ingredients for the average Australian male, sorry, if the recipe for a good Australian male required the ingredients to be baked in the oven for an, oven for an hour and a half, most of us have been taken out in an hour. We look finished on the outside, but when you slice into us, we collapse. There's no substance. 
And that's because we haven't been mentored, we haven't been properly led, we've been driven by agendas uh, uh, of, of both wings, right and left, into a place where we don't know what it means to be a man anymore. And neither do our women. If I had a dollar for every woman who said to me, um, you know, um, where have all the real men gone in Australia? And who are our heroes? You know, uh, uh, football players who scores the winning try in a grand final who then at, at the after-match party glasses his girlfriend in the face when he's drunk. Uh, Shane Warne, who, who can bowl a fast ball, but, you know, as when you look at his life in general, you have to wonder what he's about. They're being held up as heroes, but the real heroes are the people who go to work in menial jobs every day, that come home every night and, and give their children the, the benefit of, their, of the time they have with them. The average Australian male spends 37 seconds a day in one-on-one -on -one communication with each of his children. That means by the time your child is six years old, the television will have spoken to him more in that six years than you as his father will in his entire lifetime. I mean, that is just disgraceful. And we live in this thing of this merry-go-round of consumerism and what our kids need is our quality time. They need us to be present in their lives. They don't need an iPhone. They don't need an iPad. They don't need a Disneyland holiday. They need to go to the beach with Dad. They need to have Dad in their life a good four hours every day. And we don't because we're, we're slaves to debt, we're slaves to consumerism, and we're slaves to the expectations of, of mainstream media. You look at reality television. Reality television, Malcolm, is all about watching people under pressure. The Block used to be a program about renovating houses and making money. Now it's about putting adverse groups together. And, and putting them under pressure. It's all about, it's like going to the Colosseum in ancient Rome. We want to see people tear each other apart. And that and the advertising that goes with it drives a mentality in this country that has got us into this situation. We are a broken nation because we've been bloated on entitlement. We've lost any sense of community. We're too self-focused and we're losing our way. And unless we put a stop to that now, and I believe only men can do that. I don't mean that to denigrate women, but I think men have to take their rightful place again in a society where where they are seen as like the sheepdog on the top of the hill overlooking the flock. Ever present, ever reliable, always calm. None of this alpha male macho garbage, you know, this pumping iron and having tats all over yourself and all that. that, that all that's just a mask, you mm -hmm. know. The real measure of a man in his backbone and his integrity, not the muscles and the Botox and all that other garbage. I, Man, I could go for hours. Sorry, Malcolm. Yeah. You know, strength of character is the fundamental leadership trait. If you haven't got that, you're not a leader. Strength of character is basically the ability to say, Graham, I'm sorry, mate, I made a mistake. Graham, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm wrong. Graham, I don't know about this. Can you tell me what, what's needed, please? Graham, um, I'm, you, can, you can rely on my, my truthfulness. If, if the shit hits the fan, I will keep going. I'm not going to stop just because it gets a bit difficult. I'll persevere. Even when everyone else around me has stopped, I'll continue. They're the basics of strength of character. And if you look at our country, Graham, I agree entirely with you about the, the Christian, um, the, the spirit of Christianity, what Christ gave. Forgiveness, grace, love. Love and forgiveness are the same thing. Uh, but he, he meant yeah, forgiveness in the, in the real sense of the word, the real sense of the word, not the way so many churches prayed it. But if we, if we look at our Constitution, which you've also talked about, you know that the word God appears in the preamble to the Constitution, in the opening paragraphs. It's there for it a does. reason. It's there for a reason. Yep. He doesn't sit up on a throne up in the sky above the cloud somewhere 
telling Graham what he's going to do, what Malcolm's going to do. That's not God at all. But the other thing that, that we've, we've lost is, is the fact that you look at the, um, the Aboriginals, for example. We think that by giving them native title, we've solved their problems. The Native Title Act, in the preamble to that, is littered with mentions of the United Nations. The Aboriginals, when you go to the communities, as, as I've just done recently all across Cape York, every Aboriginal community, they're saying that they can't use the land. We pretend we've given it to them, but we haven't given them the rights to even use it. And now that, then that's because the UN's objective is to lock up land, is to take it off the whites as well as the blacks. And then you look at our system of government. We're spending billions on the Aboriginals, but the people on the ground are not getting it. It's the black consultants, the white consultants, the government agencies, the lawyers in the middle who are feeding off this frenzy. Because the core issue, you know core issue is, is shoddy governance, absolutely atrocious governance. Absolutely. And that, comes back, to, that comes back to a lack of parliamentary accountability. Yep. And, you know, I believe the big issue with our First Nations people is we keep referring to them as a problem. For You know, for ever since white men set foot on Australia, the Indigenous people of this country have been seen as a problem. I'm actually seeing them as a solution. I'm actually seeing the way they manage the land, like the bushfire season we went through, our, our firefighters and our fire management people are now starting to lean more and more on the Indigenous elders to work out how best we can control and manage our bush. Um, so, you know, I think I think we've, we've also fractured them in many ways, and that's a real shame. You know, we've, uh, we, we've got a, a lot to work through in that issue, but they're not a problem. I really see them as being a solution. Mate, and, mate um, when, you, when you go to Cape York communities or, or Northern Territory communities, they're wonderful people. They're wonderful people, and they have the same at heart. They're the same as us because it's the spirit that drives them. And at the moment, many of those communities, the spirit has just been smashed. Well, I spent years flying the DC-3 for Bushies out of Cairns, and oh, I yeah. service those communities, and uh, I have great love and admiration for them. And, you know, that's, that's a whole other story. But, you know, getting back to the manhood issue, we can learn a lot from them about manhood as well, about initiation and all that sort of stuff. But you know why people like... Uh, people like Pauline and, and uh, Jackie Lambie and others stand out uh, in politics is because they've had to step into the role that they've had. Let's be blunt. They've, they've got testicles. Yeah, they've, they've gone got in there. They've got balls. They've gone in there. They've had to go in there with balls because a lot of, a lot of the, uh, their male counterparts are just um, hollow shells. You know, so these women have had to step into the breach because the men haven't been doing their job. Absolutely, and, and you know, and, and, and then when they do, we criticise them. Yeah, well, I was, do, we... say, I, I was going to say, you know, Pauline, people think she likes a fight. She doesn't like an argument. She just does not like an argument. You can see she's not comfortable. But with Pauline, there's something even more uh, compelling than not arguing, and that is telling the truth. So she will confront anyone if she if she thinks they're not telling the truth or if they're doing something that's harming the Australian people. She doesn't want to fight them, but she will because the worst thing than, than confronting that fight is running away from the truth. She will never do that. And that's what's so wonderful about it. She's got strength of character. Um, yep. So I'd love to have a talk with you again one day in the future about some of these issues because I, I happen to agree with you. Parliament these days, people look up to politicians and I don't know why. 
but it's been crafted in them for many, subject another discussion. But when I look at Parliament, the number of people who are informed is tiny. The number of people who have got the guts to say what they think is tiny. And the number of people who have common sense is tiny. Parliament is ruled by people who are stupid, ignorant and gutless. And that's the, that's the result and the fault of the population because they're put there by the voters, Graham. So the fundamental that's right. thing that's got to happen here is the voters have got to take control of our country. We we have to take the uh, we have to take those weaklings in Parliament out of office because they have no right to be there. Correct. They have no right to be there. We yeah. I go back to my original statement. We need to remove the politicians and replace them with citizens. Correct. So, what are you doing now? What's next? Well, you know, I've been approached by by a couple of parties to run, um, and I toyed with it for a while, but it just doesn't sit with me. Um, I'm a I'm a Sabbath-keeping Christian. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Um, I love Jesus. I put God ahead of everything. Uh, Michelle and my kids come under that, and my country comes under that, and I believe that's the way we're meant to function. Um, for example, I um, I uh, was asked to go to the next rally on the Tweed Coast. On the, it was meant to be on the 6th of November, and I said to the organisers, and this is a global rally, by the way. The Reclaim the Line rally has now gone global. And the organisers had set it all up for Saturday the 6th of November. And Saturday is, uh, is the day that I allocate because it's God's law to spend that time with him. And so I said to the organisers, I can't go because that's going to be on my Holy Sabbath and my allegiance is to God first. And, and he demands that of me and I'll spend that day with him and my family and my wife. And, and they understood. And I said, if you, if you value the integrity that I demonstrate in the things I say, then you have to know that that comes from Jesus, not from me. So I have to keep my allegiance to the power source that I'm using in these conversations. Hmm. Fifteen minutes later, they texted me back and said they'd change it to Sunday. <laughs> so, you know, so for me, going into politics, um, it, it would contravene a lot of my values. I think there are a lot of people gifted to the task much better than me uh, given my age of 68, I really, I really see my role as being involved in the rebuild from the spirit of the of the nation's point of view. I want to get us back to where we were. I want to get the larrikin back in us. So, in the last few weeks, I've been overwhelmed by the suicidal messages I'm getting from a lot of my followers, and I haven't been able to keep up with it. And the other night, I put out an impassioned video to anybody who's now unemployed, who's got uh, crisis. Uh, crisis um, uh, psychology skills, uh, crisis counselling skills, mental health care nurses, uh, psychiatrists, doctors, anybody who can help that I can refer people to. And one incredibly passionate young lady set up a thing called Hoodies Helpers, because my nickname's Hoodie. And they set up Hoodies Helpers as a Facebook page and they let it be known that these people were res- wanted to respond and give the help that to other Australians, whether they're vaccinated or not, because a lot of people are suicidal who've been jabbed. And um, so that's now gone to a website and there are hundreds of professionals joining arms to help work and save the mentality of this country to keep the spirit alive. And that will extend, I'm sure, to we'll have a lot of unemployed teachers very soon. So we're hoping to extend that to perhaps running Zoom classes for kids in homeschooling to give teachers an opportunity to keep teaching. We're going to link up with food banks. We're going to link up with other services to keep the segregated minority 
the apartheid uh, subdued and, and constrained minority in, in still in some semblance of community, that they don't feel like they're in a leper colony. And so Hoodie's Helpers is, is a movement that's come out of a rant and we're, um, we're looking to see that uh, really take wings and that the people who are joining that embody the spirit of Australia and a lot of them have been double vaccinated. A lot of the volunteers <laughs> have been double vaccinated and that's what we've got to get back to. So I see that and I see myself really working in whatever years I've got left trying to rebuild manhood in our country. I want to do a lot of public speaking about that. I'm better off speaking to people about these issues than, than answering messages on a computer or trying to work out social media. Other people need to do that. Um, there's a book about to be co-written uh, with myself and a ghostwriter. We're going to put out a book and we're both impassioned about the same things. Um, so we're really trying to turn this into a positive movement to get our spirit back because I reckon, I reckon we've still got hope in this country. The greatest pandemic is fear mm -hmm. and the fear pandemic has many variants there's a suicide variant there's a domestic violence variant there's an out a, a, an outgrowing uh, addiction variant there's a broken business variant there's um there's a lack of education variant you know kids aren't going to school there's so many variants and one inoculation and it's only one you might need to give it a booster every now and then the inoculation for that is hope so I'm about giving as many people hope as I can. I'm trying to look for the silver lining in every situation. And God never wastes a hurt, Malcolm. He no. never, ever wastes a hurt. And here's the thing about God. God wants us to have freedom of choice because he is about love. We were, we were created to love each other and to love him. You can't mandate somebody love you. So evil thrives in this world because God allows it to because he allows us to make decisions. Because you can't love him or love each other if you mandate it. And yet here we live in a society that mandates um, critical gene therapy into people that hasn't been tested and we've got to stop it. Well, we can change genders by putting hormonal treatment into kids as young as 12, even 8. You know, it's crazy. Um, I, I can choose what gender I want to be. I can choose but, if, I, if I'm ill with cancer to die now with, with, uh, with new legislation, but I can't choose not to have a vaccine. Yeah. And, and, but, Graham, you can choose your gender once. Once you've made that change, that's got to be locked in forever. So what, what is that all about? You know, so it's, it's insane. But and if we can... You, you can... you can only vaccinate. You can't unvaccinate. Correct. It's the same. Correct. Um, if we can help you in any way on those things, because it, there, that is a mighty goal you're taking on, let us know. We'd, we'd, we'd love to help. And I'd love to have a chat with you about... Um, what's happening with the Aboriginals in this country because they're being ripped off. They're being yep. ripped off by whites and blacks. I, I had um, one of the senators here, an Aboriginal senator, uh, speak to me just yesterday. She said, I agree with you, by the way, that the fact that um, it's the black corporations, the so-called black corporations that have been set up by the government. Uh, the biggest problem we have in this country is shoddy governance and lack of accountability in parliaments. Um, yeah. Yep, I agree. Do you have any regrets about what's happening? It certainly doesn't sound like it. No, look, I, you know, the day I sent my resignation was a very sad day. I, I cried most of the day, but I decided that night when I went to sleep I was going to wake up and the grieving would be finished. I really believe that the last 68 years of my life has been, has been about this moment. And I, I, I preach, uh, preach or a sermon or I talk to men about um, living for a good funeral, living a life that gives you a good funeral. And 
I'm determined to make sure that my life means something. And if the last 68 years and 32 years in command with Qantas was to get me to this, then maybe I'm now stepping into the real command I was meant to have when I was born. And I'm happy with that. Yeah, it, it, uh, I would suggest it is because I'm going to ask you, what do you see as the opportunities for you, for us all? This is usually a door opening. When, when a door shuts, there's another door that opens. And have you seen that yet? Yeah, I have. I, I, you know, I, keep, I keep dancing around the idea of uh, running against Barnaby Joyce in my electorate of New England. Uh, there was nothing I'd like more than to engage him in a, in a dialogue and in a debate. But you know what? That's just my ego and that's just my pride. Yeah. My real heart is to get men back to where they were, to restore communities where men and women and children can see the benefits of strong manhood and to get this country's spirit back again in that light, the spirit of the Anzacs. Because we, we, have, we have surmounted every obstacle uh, since we started. Um, and we've done it because we, we, we get together when the chips are down. You know, there's a she'll be right that used to be, don't worry, we're getting, we're getting the, the garbage kicked out of us, but we're going to survive. And the new she'll be right is, oh, who cares? You know, there's two different ways of applying she'll be right. We've got to get from who cares to we can handle this. And I believe that the Australian people still have enough of that spark in them to do that. But we've got to really deal with government. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to get corporations where, back to where they need to be. You know, and we need to ask ourselves some serious questions. We have no manufacturing. Uh, we have limited fuel supplies. Uh, all we are is, is a, a resource supplier for, for big countries and big corporations overseas. And if the chips hit the fan, if shipping and freight and, and everything stops to Australia, it would take us years to kick the country back into gear again. And yet, and do you know which, is the, which country is the largest exporter of energy? Australia. Yeah, we're number one in natural gas and we're number two in coal. And, yeah, and, and, we, and, and, and we're not we allowed to use it here now, according to the Greens and according to the, the Liberal National and also Labor Party. We, we shouldn't be using them. But we can ship them overseas. Yeah, so it's still going into the atmosphere, just not out of Australia. Crazy stuff. Um, let's, let's, you're very passionate about restoring manhood to Australia. Let's finish with a question. Having been thrust into the limelight by making a stand for informed choice and dealing with the consequences, what are your messages for the young people of today around freedoms, informed consent and the constitution and manhood? Ooh, there's yeah. an error in that. There's an error in that. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, to to that, that generation, I want to say that your fathers and grandfathers and their fathers before them fought their guts out and died so that you could have the freedoms that many of us are now giving away on your behalf. And many of you are giving them away too. Don't do that. Don't squander that opportunity. Don't squander that reality. I want to say to, to the young women and men uh, of, the, of this generation too, um, we don't support healthy relationships by getting bogged into pornography and social media and mainstream media. Um, those things denigrate us. They bring us down. Start thinking about something greater than yourself. Start thinking about a higher power. Start thinking about some level of spirituality because when you do that, you give, you, you, it takes a lot of pressure off you. You know, There's a wonderful prayer that says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So there are a couple of components. Um, accept, to be accepting, 
to be courageous and to be wise. Those three things are in the first stanza of that recovery prayer. And if we live into that, and if we become vocal, and if we take an interest, and if we as young people tell the oldies who are still running the show what we, what we really need from them, and getting them on board and, and getting them involved in, in the decisions that they're making because the decisions we're making now impact you and your children in the future. We can't squander that. What we're giving away now will never come back. You know, people used to say the GST won't last forever. Well, it's, it's here to stay. You know what I mean? So you have to take an interest. If you like living in Australia and you're an Australian, as much as everything seems hopeless to you with a big future ahead of you and, and what are you going to do with all these years you've got left, that future is largely in your hands now and we need you to participate. We need you to really participate in the processes that are going on. And if you do that, everyone, everyone benefits and we benefit. The oldies who've wrecked it for you, we get to benefit because of your leadership. So don't shy away from leadership and be real to yourself. Live in integrity. Look at yourself in the mirror and be happy with what you see, regardless of what social media tells you you need to look like. Be happy with who you are, knowing that in your heart you are a decent, lovable, acceptable, capable person who has the world at their fingertips if they only seize the day. And I don't know what else I can say. Well, perhaps we'll finish with um, a quote from Maria Montessori, who, in my understanding, is the most objective uh, she's dead now, most objective observer of humanity and human development ever, especially kids and human development. And she said, Graham, wherever you see a lack of responsibility, you will see a lack of freedom. And that's what we see in Australia right now. Uh, that hasn't just come in the last 18 months. It's been decades in the making. So Graham embodies the spirit of Australia and is a champion for our freedoms. Graham's voice is one of the many that remind us of what it is to be an Australian, something many have forgotten. Look at the attributes. Open, natural, honest, talked about his brokenness, his childhood trauma, the conflicts he's had to face and endure. He's passionate, he's intelligent, he's independent and free-thinking, yet he's also a team player. And that's why he's a strong team player, because he's independent. And it's why he's independent, because he's a strong team player. He's caring, driven, he's conscious of what he's doing, what he's thinking, what he's feeling, what he's saying, and he's got perseverance. He's raised the issues and he's put it in the spotlight. What I really appreciate in Graham is the fact that he, like I, believe in freedom. Freedom through forgiveness, freedom of love, freedom of grace that Christ taught us, freedom that's inherent in us and that Christ actually stripped away the ego to show us that that's in all of us and Graham embodies that. Thank you for joining me today, Senator Malcolm Roberts, on Our Nation Today.